Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Welcome to The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network, a show where we discuss in detail many aspects of the spiritual life in the Catholic faith. I'm uh, your host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and I have the pleasure, as always, uh, to have our regular guest with us, uh, Father Bernard Utley, OSB. And Father, thank you once again for joining us for an episode of The Spiritual Life. You're welcome. Again, thank you for having me. This show uh, is uh, sponsored by a generous but anonymous benefactor from Australia. So, therefore, the entire show is available to listeners free of charge. You can listen to the whole show for free, thanks to the benefactors. So, our thanks once again to that uh, generous individual who's uh, made this possible um, to receive access to full a slate of Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.com. Go to the member area on the menu to find out details on becoming a member. Tonight, we are doing part two uh, in the spiritual life on divine providence. Father, it's been a a month since our, our last episode, so I wonder if you could start us off with a quick recap of what we covered last month. Okay. Uh, first of all, yeah, I wanted to uh, emphasize the fundamental principles why we believe in divine providence uh, and why we have to be absolutely, uh, to have absolute trust in God's loving providence. And um, that's really what I went over in the last episode, that these are a priori principles, which means before the fact, before anything at all that happens to us or happens in the world, we have to approach these events with the eyes of faith. So, uh, first of all, we we believe that God exists, that He is the Supreme Lord and Creator of all things, and that creatures are absolutely uh, dependent beings. They're contingent, um, uh, totally uh, uh, held in... uh, that God must hold all things in existence, giving... uh, uh, creatures their existence from moment to moment, or else that they would fall back into their native nothingness, and that therefore, uh, from these principles, from these facts, nothing can happen in this world, not a hair can fall from your head, as our Lord said, nor a sparrow die, unless God has willed it directly or permitted it to happen, and His permissive will is, is really a part of His will. It's not. We must also believe that our our God is not only infinitely powerful, but infinitely good and loving and wise. And therefore, anything that happens in this life, especially the things that we do not or cannot understand, we have to believe that God only allows evil that a greater good may come from it, and that everything is part of His all-wise and all-loving providential plan, period. And everything about divine providence is contained in uh, these principles. And that's what I want to stress. You know, we have, there's a lot of questions in regard to why God allows suffering. Why is, why is there some moral evil in the world and, and everything? But it comes back to these principles. You may not be able to understand why everything happens, but it's, if you keep to these principles, you're going to have peace of soul. And you're going to see things a little bit more clearly. In today's episode, I wanted to deal with a few issues that may not be directly about divine providence, but which I think are closely linked to it, and there's some practical applications in the practice of abandonment to divine providence. So first of all, to begin, uh, we know that to be holy is simply this, 
to want and to do God's will in all the details of our life. And we know that our view of right and wrong uh, must agree with God's view and that we must act accordingly. That is, we, we, we must choose what is right and reject what is wrong, avoid what God wants us to avoid and endure what God wants us to endure. Uh, God's will is revealed to us, as we mentioned last episode, and can be discerned by us in many ways. We have by his commandments, uh, his counsels, the counsels of Christ, the example of Christ, the traditional and unquestionable uh, teachings of the Catholic faith, the duties of our state of life, uh, obedience to lawful human authority. Uh, We have divine inspiration, human advice natural inspiration. Sometimes we just think of something in his resignation to the events of providence. And, you know, those are the main sources that we know God's will, but all this is simple in theory. Uh, In the practical order, it's not always so simple. Even with all these means of knowing God's will, combined with sincere prayer for light, there are many, many circumstances in which we cry, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? You know, we want to do God's will, but we don't know the best decision to make, which will be, quote-unquote, God's will. And this is a perennial problem, if I want to call it that, which all of us, even saints, uh, must face from time to time. Um, But there are some spiritual principles that will give us at least some consolation in those difficult times. The most important is that we must foster this disposition of soul— which St. Paul and all the saints had, when St. Paul said at his conversion, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And these are the words that are key to St. Paul's whole conversion. He wanted to do God's will. He sincerely wanted God, and he wanted to do the will of God no matter the sacrifice. What wilt thou have me do? And our Lord himself said this in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. That's the fundamental thing. We want to do God's will. That's the key. Um, Often it is very difficult to discern God's will in the many complex and trying circumstances of everyday life, Um, whether this is through inculpable ignorance, confusion, or simply due to the difficulty of the situation. Sometimes we're placed into some some difficult situations. It it, it can be a a source of acute anxiety, especially for pious souls who sincerely desire to do God's will and are afraid of making the wrong decision and of offending him. Um, Obviously, it would be foolish to expect God to personally write us a letter telling us explicitly what to do or what not to do. Um, Nor can we we go running all the time to our confessor or spiritual director for advice on every little decision we have to make. So how then, how shall I know what is the will of God? And, and sometimes these difficult situations. The answer is one of common sense, I think, and is consoling for those who are seeking to please God, and not, not necessarily for those who are seeking a magic formula for discovering the quote-unquote right answers all the time that will lead to success in all the circumstances of life. Basically, God has bestowed on each of us a greater or lesser degree of understanding, along with certain aids which help us toward making a good choice. And basically, it's basically this. God has given us brains and then tells us, now go ahead and do your sincere best to make the right choice. And if we act according to our light and ability, 
after prayer and advice if possible or necessary, and then trustful abandonment to divine providence, then we have certainly done the will of God in the given circumstance. Uh, even if it turns out to be uh, a failure, externally speaking, and we'll talk more about that. Abbot Chapman, as I, I mentioned him last time, uh, in one of his spiritual letters, he gives us some of the principles here. Um, quote, in the case of anyone, any pious person, the proper thing is, one, to pray for guidance, two, to act for the best, three, to say that we have done God's will, even if we find that we had decided wrongly or that, anyhow, the result is wrong, unquote. So we have to realize that God doesn't expect us to know and to do what is the most perfect thing in itself, considered objectively, objectively. But what we, here and now, sincerely suppose to be His will. It may turn out that our choice was a very poor one, as far as human wisdom is concerned, but we have, nevertheless, made the wisest choice in the wisdom of God. We are only human, and we're not infallible, but we will infallibly please God if we have sincerely striven to please Him. That's the key. God looks to our intention and the honest efforts to do His will. And this is all that God really asks of us. And thus, doing our best to know and follow God's will, we are always successful in His sight, for He judges just judgments. And it wouldn't be just uh, of God to penalize us or punish us for a mistake that we sincerely thought was His will. And this is where absolute trust in divine providence comes in. Even when we seem to have chosen wrong, um, even after we did our sincere best, uh, we have to trust that the outcome is part of God's providence for us, that He allowed this to happen for a reason, and that if we love God, we can turn any misfortune even, even uh, into a positive for ourselves spiritually. For them that love God, all things work together for the good, as St. Paul says. So I think this is a very important um, principle, that we mustn't imagine that um, God's will is always success for us, that everything we do, as long as we do God's will, we'll always be successful. No, in this life, God some, wants us to fail sometimes. He wants us to have that cross. Um, even after we have done our best, and we have to see that we have to um, we have to you know trust in his divine providence and and it doesn 't mean that because there is suffering there 's a misfortune in our life that somehow God is punishing us necessarily um, that 's not a, a Christian God allows the cross for a reason one error uh, which we must carefully avoid in the matter of seeking god 's will is called illuminism. And I'll let Abbot Chapman explain what is meant by Illuminism. He says this, quote, What I call Illuminism is this. A, I pray, and then I make a decision which I call infallibly right in itself. And then B, or a superior, like he's saying, a religious superior, says, Whatever you do under obedience has God's blessing and will turn out a success. Therefore, whatever I order is infallibly right. There is a lot of Illuminism about Unquote. I remember once at uh, the monastery, Our Lady um, uh, Christ the King Abbey, some lady called my abbot, Abbot Leonard Giardina, and uh, told him or asked him that she was building a, a grotto in her backyard and was concerned where to place a statue of Our Lady. She wanted to know what was God's will. 
and wanted the abbot to reveal that to her. And obviously, uh, obviously the abbot doesn't know the best place to put it and, and wasn't going to pretend that he had some kind of revelation. So he turned it back on her and said, just put it where you think it looks best, and that's God's will. In other words, use common sense. Don't get scrupulous. God gave you a brain, and so you have to use it. Um, I think that's it's an important thing. A director, a spiritual director, and I'll get in this in, in, a, in a minute, is not there to make all the decisions for you. Um, it's not necessarily a magic formula. You know, she may have thought, okay, that's uh, the best place to put it, but maybe a, a tree branch comes down and, and, and crushes the statue. You did the best you could at the time. You know, you did God's will. Move on, you know. Um, also, Abbot Chapman, he warns us about Illuminism, and this can be applied to uh, religious superiors, confessors, spiritual directors, parents, even teachers. Uh, even in regard to a, a religious uh, obeying his or her superior, it's not a matter of that superior being right all the time and that uh, they will give the most wise and prudent command all the time. They're not infallible. They're not necessarily inspired, although they do receive special graces and the grace of state. Uh, but that's, but simply that, that, that subject in obeying out of love for God, or that child, for instance, obeying out of love for God, obeying uh, the superior as representing Christ, that subject will be doing the will of God and will spiritually benefit from that act of obedience, but their actions may not always result in success outside themselves. You know, they may be commanded, for example, you know, the, the, the superior may have know nothing about gardening, know nothing about that, and they may say, uh, do this, put, uh, you know, uh, uh, water the garden, you know, five times a day, and the, and the subject's like, uh, you know, okay, uh, and he goes out and um, floods the garden and, and kills everything. Now, that obedience was a success internally, spiritually, but it doesn't mean that the outward, you know, it doesn't mean that that, that superior uh, made the best, objectively speaking, the best decision. It just means that that subject did the will of God, even though what turned out uh, to uh, be a failure external, externally speaking. And I think that can be applied to other aspects of everyday life. Uh, we have to trust in divine providence to turn sincere mistakes or accidents or misfortunes into successes spiritually, you know, uh, beneficial for us. Um, no, no, Father, when, when you, uh, could, could I just interject with a quick question that, that I, I think of when you're, you're talking about that when you say that you know an individual has a brain, you have to use it in mm-hmm. dealing with a say a question where one's wondering what God's will is in a say a situation that's a little bit more or morally ambiguous, perhaps like they're not mm-hmm. sure which is you know a situation where maybe it's not totally clear what's the the morally correct course of action. Is there some corresponding duty to use your brain in terms of to look into it rather than just um, kind of go with your gut or, or something like that. Yeah, you do. Uh, yeah, you it, it's you can't have culpable ignorance, especially in dealing with moral things. If you do what's best you can to try to figure out, uh, try to find, uh, to look something up, ask advice. But sometimes you're not able to do that. And then if it's not clear at the time, uh, and you don't have a clear a clear. You know, you have good probable reason to believe that uh, the course of action 
uh, one way or another is 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 probably correct. Um, and then you have principles in relation to what we call in moral theology probabilism, uh, where um, uh, where there's doubt, there's liberty, and where there's uh, that only a, a certain obligation is binding. Uh, so if there's probable opinion that, um, you know, for instance, let's go back to the Friday fast, uh, you know, that uh, you're not, you haven't seen a calendar, you, 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 you know, this is a, maybe a far-fetched uh, example right now, but you, you don't know, is it Friday? Is it today? Is it Friday? And you really don't have um, something you can look up right you know, without grave inconvenience. I think it's Thursday because of this, this, and this, or I think it's Saturday because of this, but it could be Friday. But you have to go on that you have good reasons to believe it's Thursday or good believe in, uh, to believe that it's not Friday. Therefore, you're free. You, you, are, you don't have to take the more strict uh, uh, choice. You, where there's doubt, there's liberty. Where there's uh, without a, a certain obligation, then, you're, you say, then you say, well, I think it's Thursday. I yeah, even though there might be some chance that it isn't, I have good reason to believe that it isn't. But those are principles in probabilism. It gets there's there's some exceptions to that rule, but yes, generally speaking, to answer your question, you do have to uh, do your best to to dispel that ignorance. Does that mm-hmm. answer your question? Yeah, I, I think it does. Yeah. Abbot Chapman um, continues this. He says. We have not to aim at a theoretical perfection or an ideal sanctity, nor have we to expect our actions to end in success rather than in failure, nor have we to suppose that God will inspire us to follow the course which is best, most prudent, or most lucky. But we are sure that he will enable us to follow our conscience, which may be ill-formed, and thus to act as is most pleasing to himself. Why not walk in darkness and doubt and worry, Yet at the same time, at the top of our soul, perfect peace and light that it is God's will that we should be in darkness and doubt and worry. It sounds a paradox, as common sense so often does, but it is really plain sense, and it is the opposite of Illuminism. Illuminism means I have prayed, and God will inspire me to do the wisest thing or speak the right words with infallible results. Descartes, however, would say, and Descartes is that spiritual writer that wrote um, um, excellently on the practice of abandonment to divine providence. Cossade, however, would say, I have prayed and have the right intention. Therefore, God will be satisfied with the stupid things I do or say, as he knows I cannot do better. But our author most reasonably adds that these imperfect acts and words in the long run turn out most curiously effective and successful as though by accident, while the doer or speaker feels foolish and incompetent and humble. This is surely not illuminism. It would be odd if God's providence did not arrange things thus. He who, he who chooses the weak and the foolish to confound the strong and the wise, that no flesh may glory before God. One lives in perpetual doubt and ignorance what God's will is going to be, but not what it is at this individual moment. That we always know, because it is. Therefore, the whole point of the sacrament of the present moment is that it is a covering yet revealing sacrament. It is God's action, God's will, or it is God. All my duty is to keep in touch with him at this moment as this moment passes into the next. My obvious duty may be at this moment to consider what comes next and not to know. 
unquote. And that those last two sentences are excellent. Let me repeat them. All my duty is to keep in touch with him at this, as this moment passes into the next. My obvious duty may be at this moment to consider what comes next and not to know, unquote. Now, Father, for, for those who um, may not have heard last episode, I, I wonder if you could just comment a bit on Descartes' use of the term sacrament of the present moment, because I, I think okay. that perhaps the listener, if they didn't hear last month's episode, they might wonder a little bit at that turn of phrase. Yeah, the sacrament of the present moment is what Descartes was meaning is that under the outward and, and, and visible circumstances of our life, God wishes to impart grace to our soul in, in, in much the same way, not exactly the same way, obviously, but in much the same way that he imparts grace through the visible and tangible signs of his sacraments, the seven sacraments, that there is a, a physical side, there's something, there's a material side, and then there's a spiritual uh, action upon the soul. Um, and so the sacrament of the present moment is that we simply uh, receive whatever comes to us moment by moment, the action all around it, all our circumstances, abandoning ourselves to God, accepting and willing everything because it is God's will for us here and now. As I said, you know, at those principles that nothing happens in this life unless God directly wills it or permits it, so basically wills it. And so when you unite your, your will with God's will, there is a, a spiritual union there. There is a communion. That's what communion is. There's communion together, a union with. And when you unite yourself with God's will, it's, it's, it's an act of love. It's really an act of love, and that's a spiritual communion. Um, so everything that happens to us, we unite ourselves. That's really what charity is. It's the union of wills. That's what love is, the union of the lover and the beloved in their will, that we will the same thing. Um, so really, that's what the sacrament is. The sacrament is really, there's something visible and something invisible. So everything that happens in this life, there's something visible. But there's also something invisible that is meant by God. There's, there's some kind of action, a grace, in a sense, you could say, is hidden behind the events of life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I just okay. want to make sure any listeners, yes. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to no one's creating an eighth sacrament here, but it's just... Uh, no, 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 no. I think that you explain why, why the phrase is used the way it is. Yes. Yes, it, it's used by analogy, basically. Uh, right. But really, this is the whole uh, part of, you know, the incarnation of our Lord, is that everything, the world becomes sacramental in a sense. Our Lord used a, a, a humanity to sanctify the world. He uses water in a sacrament to baptize. He uses bread and wine, and he uses physical things to affect spiritual things. This is the principle, really, that, it, that runs all through Christianity. Uh, so why not really everything? The saints thought of everything as God's action upon them. And it brings God much closer to us, that he's, he's constantly in our life. Um, I wanted to, to, to go from here. We're talking about illuminism here that I wanted to talk just really briefly about um, spiritual direction, because Abbot Chapman, I, I really like what he had to say about this. He, he, he basically he says that a director is more like a nurse trying to get the, the, the patient back to their feet so they can walk by themselves. And that the real purpose of direction, uh, he insisted, was to keep the soul humble, 
and to prevent it from trusting to its own unaided judgment or, or putting too much confidence in its own light, what, what you want to do, he was against overdirection. And I was, I'm against overdirection as well as a spiritual director or a confessor. A confessor should not make all the decisions for a penitent, and a penitent should not seek for this. Rather, a confessor should give the soul principles to apply in the future. It's, it's like a nurse. Again, you're going to help someone get healthy so they can walk. Uh, you know, you teach them. It, it's basically that old proverb, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, feed him for life. And that done, the, the director you know, should be ready to retire into the background uh, and only emerging on rare occasions when unusual circumstances or some particular crisis calls for his assistance. What happens, what can happen is that someone can be so afraid to make a decision uh, that they try to get other people to make it for them so they don't have to take responsibility for their own choices. Um, it's good to seek advice, but we also have to also trust in divine providence. And again, that goes back to our other uh, points. Uh, in a book uh, called My Father's Will, a Jesuit priest by the name of Father Francis McGarrigal, I did quote him last episode, uh, he sums up all this uh, quite nicely. He says, quote, How shall I know what is the will of God? Is the question that almost inevitably will be asked by those to whom we propose the divine will as the guiding norm of their life's activities. God is disposed that each person have certain abilities of understanding and judgment, certain instruments and aids towards making a good choice, a certain set of circumstances in which each choice is to be determined. Then God as much as tells them, now go ahead and do your best to choose the best. If they act according to their lights and abilities, they have certainly done the will of God, even though they have made a poor choice as far as human wisdom is concerned. They have made the wisest choice in the wisdom of God. They have been successful in God's eyes, even though in the eyes of men the result is a miserable failure. Uh, thus, doing our best to follow God's will, we are always successful in a sight who alone judges just judgments. Truly an immense consolation for those of us who feel keenly our limitations and our small human success. The chief means for perceiving the will of God, which must be used with all other means, is the gift of the Holy Ghost, understanding. For it, we should constantly pray, come Holy Ghost and send forth from heaven a ray of thy light, unquote. So basically, uh, it comes down to uh, we should avoid the, the spirit of indecision. Um, sometimes we have to make decisions, and sometimes we don't know exactly uh, the best course. Uh, we simply do our best, want to do, primarily want to do God's will, and then trust to divine providence. Um, often God lets us, lets us remain in the dark concerning the best road to take, and he leaves us to grope and stumble our way towards him. Uh, but if we trust God as we should, that darkness should not frighten us at all. We will be so completely abandoned to God that we, we shall know that for those who love God, St. Paul says, all things work together for the good, mistakes, wrong decisions included. You know, again, we have to do our best, but then we have to leave it. Um, we have to realize that an honest mistake is not the end of the world. Uh, God has his way of working things out for the best. Uh, sometimes turning a first-class mess into a blessing. Um, you know, often if we look in our own life, <clears throat> often some of the mistakes we made, or even, as St. Augustine said, even God turns sometimes our sins uh, into, um, he draws good out of them. 
he is that powerful. And if we look back in our life and many of our own mistakes, um, yeah, they caused us many painful things at the time. Uh, they were they were uh, very painful at the time. Uh, we went through many sufferings. Uh, but when you look back, would we change things really? Uh, we wouldn't be the the persons that we are uh, if 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 we didn't go through those hard those hard times. I remember uh, we had, we had this old monk, old Trappist monk, uh, join us at the uh, uh, Christ the King Abbey, and a young man came who was um, trying out his vocation, and he asked this old monk uh, who joined it. He, he he's a monk uh, from 1954, I believe. He asked this monk, "How do you know you have a vocation?" He goes, "Well, you know, you you never know infallible. You just have to jump off the cliff. Uh, you just have to trust in God. You never." know infallibly um really not much in this life you you have to just do your best and jump off the cliff and that may not have been the most consoling to that young man but it was the truth sometimes you know um we don't know for sure but we have to just want to please god and then trust in divine providence now in the last episode uh, you brought up the problem of evil i don't think i answered it that well um, but I did want to, to talk a few minutes about it. Um, a few other things to add to that. We all know uh, from experience that sometimes pain must be inflicted for a greater good. As a doctor, must hurt, has to cut someone open in order to heal someone sometimes. Uh, it is um, bitter medicine, uh, but necessary uh, sometimes. Suffering is meant to be medicinal primarily. And our human nature is, is like a, a broken arm. Our fallen human nature, that is, is like a broken arm that was set wrong. And it, so it needs to be broken again, as it were, to be set properly. Uh, and not to administer the cure would, would be cruel of God. Um, and that's why, you know, it's tough love. And thank goodness that God is love, and he's not L-U-V love, but true love. Um, he's a consuming fire, a burning furnace of charity. So he's a, a most loving father. And as a, a parent would do, sometimes you have to punish in order to correct. Um, love does not mean to let the loved one do whatever he or she pleases. Uh, true love means to effectively desire the true good of the beloved, even at the cost of pain, even if um, you, you want their true happiness, uh, even though they're in the immediate uh, and uh, you know, immediately it may cause some pain, but for the for the greater good. And becoming becoming perfect, you know, you you want the beloved to be to be perfect, uh, to be to be the best they can be. And becoming perfect implies change, and change hurts, and that's why love hurts. That you know, it's really a, a tough love. When we rebel against God for allowing sufferings into our life, when we pray that He be more loving, more kind with us. What we're actually asking for is not more love, but less love. We don't want him to care about us too much. You know, it's my abbot used to always say, you know, it's the rose bush that that gets pruned, gets gets uh, the most attention. That's what brings out the best roses. But it, you have to attend to it. Last episode, I, I did quote uh, C.S. Lewis, and I want to do that again, because uh, on this topic, uh, um, he has a, a great great quote. He says, by the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. And in this, we may be right. And by love, in this context, most of us mean kindness, 
the desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or in that, but just happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms, but a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. I do not claim to be an exception. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe, nevertheless, that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction." Unquote. That's the key. We, have, we must believe that God is love. And then we say, but if he's love, why does he allow suffering? Then we have to say that my conception of love is, is not as deep as it should be. Maybe I'm thinking of a different kind of love. Maybe I'm thinking about just kindness. Maybe uh, I'm thinking of an LUV kind of a, a emotional, bubbly type of love, not true love. Um, since God is love and he does allow suffering, that's part of love then, sometimes. The analogy of a physician that you mentioned earlier, that goes perfectly with it, perfectly with that, because one wouldn't, I mean, a certain surgeries can be quite painful, um, mm-hmm. even with anesthetics, but if we right. think about a time before anesthetics, I don't think people would consider a physician a very good one if he uh, didn't, you know, cut out a, a tumor or even just like a, a dislocated right. arm or something, you know, it has to be painful putting it back in the place, but one wouldn't say that right. that it should be uh, left out. And it just, unfortunately, some I guess it's maybe harder for us to see from a spiritual per- perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, are there mysteries concerning suffering? Why, why God allows this or that, that innocent person to suffer, or little children especially? That's hard to understand. Yes, there's mysteries. Yes, there's lots of mysteries. We don't know. But it all comes back to those fundamental a priori principles that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. God is good. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. It will all work out in the end. And maybe not in this life, maybe, but this life is not the most important life. The next life is. We're not made to be content with this life. Uh, we're not God's pets. And he has to give us you know, everything we need just to be comfortable. Um, he has bigger plans for us. Um, St. Alfonso says, certain people imagine that they are especially beloved by God when everything goes well with them and they have nothing to suffer. Such people labor under delusion, for it is by adversity, not by prosperity, that God proves the fidelity of his servants and separates the wheat from the sh- chaff. Unquote. So we have to have great confidence uh, in God and and in his way of treating us or our loved ones. Uh, You know, we suffer various trials and troubles, interior ones and uh, physical ones, and we think most of them are not good for us. Uh, But again, God knows best. There's not a single thing in our life or or our uh, circumstances which is left to chance, not a single event that um, he doesn't supervise. Uh, with his fatherly providence. And sometimes he seems to waste our life, uh, to hinder all the good works and service we wish to do for him. Uh, but nothing is really wasted as long as it is offered back to him. And and to offer you know, a personal note, 
<clears throat> when I was in the in the monastery, um, a couple of years before I was ordained, uh, I actually damaged my vocal cords. Um, I was trying to sing. I, everyone knows I can't sing. Well, I was trying my best to do scales on my own to pra- practice my voice, um, and I hurt my vocal cords by doing it. I did. It, I was doing it wrong, and actually, one of my vocal cords was paralyzed. And for like a year and a half, I could barely speak. Um, and that that was a hard thing to go through. Uh, very difficult. I um, uh, first of all, no one believed me. Really. Um, they thought it was just psychosomatic. It was just, oh, you're just nervous. You don't want to, you don't want to speak. Uh, uh, you know, I've always had a, a great fear of public speaking. Uh, been a, a great cross in my life, uh, especially before ordination. Um, uh, and and I basically gave up the priesthood. I thought um, I can't hardly speak. I couldn't say mass. I can never preach. I can bear. I can't even. I couldn't even hear confessions. It hurt to whisper. Uh, for a year and a half, I went through that, and I thought, why is God doing this to me? It seems like it doesn't make sense. Um, uh, but it all worked out. I got my voice back, and I have actually a stronger voice. I still can't sing well, but um, I almost didn't become a priest. And uh, I look back, why did God put me through that? Um, you know, just to appreciate, too. I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate, against. You know, also what other people go through, um, uh, you know, in in similar trials, perhaps. Um, You know, there's lots of good that I see that come out of it. At the time, I thought, why is God doing this? Why is he allowing this to happen? I'm basically finished. I'll never become a priest. In fact, I I requested from the abbot. uh, I said, you know, I'll probably, you know, I'll just cease my studies and I won't become a priest. Um, then I, a few months later, I said, no, 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 I should become a priest, even though I can just say a private mass. And and I prayed to God, and I prayed to um, especially St. Therese of the Child Jesus to give me a voice again. Um, uh, so, I, you know, everything worked out, and I got my voice back and able to preach. But again, I felt like my whole life was wasted. Um, but it was a useful thing, a useful trial at the time. For me, and everyone could, you know, recount something similar. But this is just a, a personal example that I see. That um, you know, at the time, I didn't understand. Um, I didn't understand. When I look back, would I take it back? No, I, I would not take that trial back. Um, I see the good that it did, but at the time, it was very uh, hard to go through. So, and it just it dawned on me that God's not looking for perfection outside of me, outside of us. Uh, um, even if I could never speak again in, a li- in my life, I, you know, publicly, um, um, I could still become a saint. You know, that he's looking for interior perfection of our soul and the purity of our love for him. And we have to keep reminding ourselves in all the trials in our life that the only achievement really that we exist for is sanctity and not success in the external work, uh, however spiritual it may be. You know, um, uh, we're just meant here to, to please no one else really except God. We're here to please God. And it, and it should be very consoling that no matter how sick we are, how use, quote-unquote useless we may become, no matter what others may think of us or judge of us, no matter how um, unspiritual the environment in which we live, nothing really can hinder us from reaching close union with God uh, unless we allow it to. Because everything can become as part of His providence in our life. We can unite ourselves 
in any trial. A, a person in a sickbed, they cannot move. They can become a saint. They don't have to do something externally as much as their interior union with God's will. So whatever God has in store for us, whether, uh, you know, continual useful, uh, uselessness, quote-unquote, or great temptations or trials or sufferings of the body and soul, um, everything can be used as stepping stones towards, uh, stepping stones towards greater union with God. And, and that's really, uh, St. Therese of the Child Jesus said, everything is a grace. And when she said everything, she meant everything. Um, everything inside us and outside us, every single thing that happens to us uh, or about us, no matter how small, God coordinates everything to work together for one end, and that is our complete union with Him. And really, the fruit of abandonment to divine providence, we mentioned this last time, is peace of soul. Um, that's We have great peace of soul, but it's primarily union with God's will. The, the, the true fruit of abandonment to divine providence is, is a greater love for God, because um, it's union with His will. And on this uh, topic of uh, just peace of soul, uh, I think we would make, uh, um, everyone would make a tremendous uh, uh, step, a giant step in, in acquiring peace of soul or maintaining peace of soul if we would simplify our view of life. And I think that one of the ways to do this, we can separate everything into two groups in our life that namely one is those things that we can change and those things that we cannot change. And if we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit that much of our worrying is unnecessary and misplaced. We often worry about things that we shouldn't worry about, and we often ignore those things that we should be concerned about. And all those things that are simply out of our control, things that we cannot help or hinder or change, uh, really by far constitute the, constitute the greater portion of our lives, I think, and much of our anxiety in life lies in meddling in affairs that we should simply leave to the hands of God, praying that His will be done. For example, natural disasters, accidents, even in the lives of other people, uh, unexpected death, what others think of us, say of us, some things we just can't control. And then there are the things that we should be doing something about, for example, fulfilling our duties of our state of life, uh, striving to overcome our personal faults and failings, etc. Um, but we have to mind our own business. Um, we, we have to attend to our own sanctification and then, then leave everything to divine providence. Let's not try to run the universe for God. Mm -hmm. it, there's a, a well-known prayer uh, I think it has so much wisdom to it. it. It's everyone knows the serenity prayer. I think that's a beautiful prayer. I think it's it, there's much wisdom in there, and it says, "Lord, give me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference." And um, if we followed that prayer, if we lived that, I, I think that's part of divine, you know, abandonment to divine providence. There's some things that we have to do. Then there's much things that we cannot change absolutely trust in God's providence. No, oh, I, I think that's an important point, and uh, it's something that's come up on uh, the radio program before. I think maybe among traditional Catholics, it's sometimes a bit of a temptation, perhaps more than some other people, to get overly worried about what's going on mm -hmm. in the world, the the state of the Church. Um, mm -hmm. when it, that's something that we have absolutely no control over. You know, or or some people they worry about when the three the three days of darkness, right, right. Like that. But you know, these are things that we can't control, mm -hmm. and 
I, I take it there's nothing wrong with having a certain level of interest and uh, mm-hmm. taking some preparation, but not it's something we can't control, right. not to be fretted over. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to use a term that, you know, it's not accurate, but it's it's uh, conservative-minded people. I'm going to say that, including traditionalists, including even uh, of other faiths, more conservative-minded people, they tend to worry a lot because there is, um, you know, there's, uh, they just tend to be worried about, okay, worried about the government, worried about uh, martial law, worry about even the Ebola uh, infection. Yeah, we have to be concerned, to be prudent, but there's always there's always a new crisis. There's always a new oh this is going to be this is going to be the end, and this is going to be a financial crisis. All about this, and there's always something that that uh, you know, especially people who watch a lot of the news. Um, there's always fear. There's 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 a fear mongering. Um, oh ISIS, you know, it's always something, and another boogeyman. Um, so we have to get away from that. Yes, we have to be prudent, concerned, be informed of what's going on, but our our you know keep our peace of soul. Uh, trust in divine providence, and especially in regard to the church. It's crazy what's going on in the church. It's unprecedented, but God's in control, ultimately. Now, finally, uh, I'm coming to uh, another point, uh, something in the spiritual life, um, a concept that's not too well known. To my mind, it's it's very important. It's a very uh, important concept to understand in order to um really practice abandonment to divine providence. It is a, um, I guess you could call it a practical technique, uh, a, a method, a means, almost a mental trick, kind of, uh, that will help us to maintain a deep peace of soul no matter what happens around us or inside us even. Um, and thus we can keep our will united with God despite everything. Um, and, and what I'm going to talk about will also help us understand and practice the prayer of contemplation, which is something that we'll talk about in upcoming shows. <clears throat> but I think one of the greatest secrets of the spiritual life, if you want to call it a secret, is to know how to live uh, in the spirit or in what spiritual writers have called the apex of the soul or the high point of the soul. And uh, I really believe this is a, another golden key, which it opens to us a way to greater spiritual progress and a deeper, more enduring peace of soul. And, and uh, people that I've come in contact with that I have uh, had the chance to explain this to, and I've given them, you know, Abba Chapman's letters, who talks about it, and Descartes Sade talks about it, um, have found that, hey, this is really helpful. It's really important. Um, it, it, the high point of the soul is one of those things which is a little difficult um, to explain in a simple way, precisely because it is so extremely simple and even obvious uh, in actual practice and experience. Yet unless uh, we are introduced to this idea of the high point of the soul, uh, we will most likely never realize it and avert to it uh, and thus never acquire the habit the beneficial habit of living in the high point of the soul, as the spiritual writers call it. First of all, when we use the term high point of the soul, we are are using a metaphor, uh, something which our imagination can picture to help us understand and and relate to a a purely spiritual reality. In fact, um, instead of high point, some spiritual writers use the term the depth of the soul or the base of the soul or the ground of the soul or the center of the soul. 
or whichever metaphor is used, it all refers really to the same thing. The high point of the soul, or whatever we want to call it, it's not a physical place, but a kind of a psychological or mental place uh, within us, which we can make use of and, and quote-unquote live in, as it were. In this sense, um, it might help if we imagine our soul as though we were a tall mountain uh, with, the, <clears throat> with the peak of the mountain far above the clouds. And to, to live in the high point uh, is to train ourselves <clears throat> excuse me, to view and judge everything, even our own soul and its present passing state, objectively, to judge everything objectively, as though we were a spectator from the, from the serene heights of this mountain. And, and we can then look down from the peaceful peak, this high point of the soul, and see ourselves perhaps all disturbed below at the base, uh, you know, full of clouds and storms and all sorts of disturbances, but without letting any of this really, really disturb us uh, in that high point. Or, or let's change the metaphor. We can plunge into the depth of our soul as if it were a deep ocean. And no matter how rough the waters get on the surface, uh, we must remain in the peace and the depths uh, of the soul. And from the depths, we can see everything that is passing on the surface of life. Indeed, we will still feel the, the trials and storms of life. But we will know that even if everything seems to be falling apart all around us, that everything is well, all is well, because God is still God, and he is still in control, uh, and that he is still, still carrying us in his loving arms. And so what else do we really need? Um, the, the only thing that really matters in this life is God and union with him. And, and so <clears throat> we must learn to get mentally above all of the vicissitudes of life, whether outside of us or inside of us, in such a way that no matter what happens, no matter what we may feel or not feel, we can remain united to God with our will, clinging to him through all the storms of life, really letting nothing really disturb our inner peace. Even when you're disturbed, don't be really disturbed. Um, and that does, maybe that seems weird to say that, but it's really important. Um, St. Paul. St. Peter, excuse me, says, cast your care upon God, for he has care of you. Cast, uh, he says. And, and the original Greek word actually implies something closer to dump, uh, a more e expressive term meaning utterly letting go. You know, cast, when we think of the English word cast, we think of more of, you know, an activity of like effort, you know, but it's more like letting go, just let it go with complete childlike abandonment, complete trust that you're just falling back into his arms. So it may help us to understand what is uh, what I mean by the li uh, living in the high point of the soul or the low point of the depth. If we picture it as a, a, a strong, as a rock, a big rock in the middle of the, of the stream, a river, which remains firm despite being continually, you know, buffeted by the contrary currents of life and all the rocks and pebbles of, of trial and adversity. So you could look at it that way as well. Now, all these are metaphors. They're help to help us to imagine it in a, such a way, and maybe one will help more than, than the other. But let us now put aside and tr uh, transcend uh, these metaphors and, and go a little deeper into this concept of the high point of the soul by, I think, a, you know, a more accurate, albeit a, a little bit more dry philosophical approach. And, and to have a deeper understanding of Catholic spirituality, it's helpful 
I think, necessary to stick to the traditional way of describing the soul or dissecting the soul or mapping the soul, as it were, um, the human soul. First of all, let us always keep in mind that the soul is a spirit. It's perfectly simple and indivisible. It, it doesn't have parts or sections or length or height or width or weight or shape or color. And therefore, strictly speaking, the soul does not have a high point or a low point or any other point or place. But the soul, the soul does operate through certain faculties or powers, and some of these are of a higher nature and some are lower. And the higher spiritual faculties or powers of the soul are the intellect and the will. And with these powers, the soul exercises the functions of knowing and uh, choosing or determining and loving. And it's primarily by these two spiritual powers that we resemble the angelic spirits and God himself, the spirit of spirits, the great spirit. A spirit in itself is purely intellect and will, a spaceless being having no body, uh, and hence a spirit that doesn't have a body, that has no emotions or feelings or passions. But a man is not a pure spirit. He's not an angel trapped in a cage uh, nor will he ever become an angel. Uh, unlike the angels, a man's spirit is also a soul. That is, it, it is intimately united with the physical body. It animates the physical body, and it makes it to be a living body, right? Um, so he, man is, of his very nature, a, a composite of being, a composite being of spirit and matter. He has a soul as well as a body, and therefore he has lower powers, corresponding and and connecting him more directly to his physical being and sense nature and these lower powers are the imagination the memory the the sensual appetites together with all the feelings and emotions that we have now um what we mean by living in the high point of the soul is that we must learn to identify our real self the real i with our will and intellect and their actions and not with the lower part that is with all the feelings and emotions and moods and imaginations and and attractions and temptations etc um these are constantly changing in reaction to the passing events of life whereas the real i remains the same through those passing states and the lower sensible feelings and emotions may at times help the higher powers in their quest for when the quest for union with god but it is uh, primarily the higher part of the soul, which really counts in the spiritual life and in the eyes of God, your intellect and your will. Um, one of man's uh, greatest glories is his intelligence. He can think. And there are really few problems which we have to face in life, which we cannot solve with, uh, with the help of God's grace by thinking them through. Of course, we may not always be right, but we uh, need only follow the judgment we reach, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, with, after mature reflection and be willing when we learn that we're wrong to make the necessary adjustments. <clears throat> One of the, the deadliest obstacles to a strong and uh, deep spiritual life is the tendency to let emotions and feelings usurp the place and work of the intellect and will. We, we like to we like to feel our way too much through life and let the emotions do the work that they are simply not qualified to do. You know, however, what I'm here cautioning against is not that intuitive wisdom 
which is acquired by experience. But the following of those irrational feelings would so often get us into trouble. And one way this, when you look, one way this tendency is revealed is, is look at the number of people that say, I feel that this, this, and this, instead of saying, I think this, it's always about feelings. It's always about feelings. Again, it's not rational. It's not logical. Uh, many times our our decisions and our judgments are influenced by, um, you know, with our feelings and emotions instead of uh, common sense and, and logic and these things. We judge things too much with our heart in one way and not enough with our head. Um, and our head means with our reason, enlightened by faith and by the solid principles of you know, like in the Catholic spirituality. Um, and even without realizing it, most of us, I would say, usually live on the lower level of the senses and judge everything in life, even our whole spiritual life, even uh, good people, you know, very devout people, they judge the spiritual life, really everything in life, by how we feel or not feel. And so the spiritual life, then becomes really a topsy-turvy roller coaster ride with so many ups and downs that it makes us spiritually sick. You know, everything, uh, when you do that, when you live on emotions like that, you know, everything is right with us and our spiritual life uh, one day because everything feels right. While on another day, everything is wrong. Our whole spiritual life is off track simply because we feel rotten or are distracted or tempted or whatever. We worry because we do not feel our devotion at prayer, or we doubt our contrition because we do not feel very contrite. And so we let our nerves get into you know knots and uh, because we never know whether we're coming or going in the spiritual life. If you live in the roller coaster of emotions, uh, we feel that somehow we have lost our way, um, that all our efforts are wasted and everything's going wrong, that God is angry with us, uh, uh, for some reason, which we have no way of knowing, really. And our enthusiasm and then determination in the spiritual life will be dampened. Um, so in this way, our spiritual life will lack uh, real stability and consistency and depth. But we have to refuse to <clears throat> ride that roller coaster of feelings. We have to try to get above them or below them or pay no attention to them whatsoever. And really, one of the most important things in the spiritual life is, first of all, never to give up, to always pick ourselves up each day and continue striving for union with our Lord, no matter how we feel or what we feel or not feel. The, the important point is we, we, we go to God, not through our feelings and emotions, but through our intellect and our will. And much of the feeling of lack of devotion or lack of fervor in the spiritual life could be blamed on nerves or, or the weather or just plain indigestion. Um, and it, 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 again, most of us live on that, that on the lower level. And, and this, this is, you know, even with regard to temptations that come up in our life, you know, or unruly imagination or disturbed emotions, the key is, is trying to ignore them. Rather, you know, especially in regard to temptation, one of the secrets is not to directly fight them or violently resist them, is to distract yourself. Often to directly fight, say, a temptation or emotional disturbance usually makes them worse because it focuses and intensifies our attention upon them. 
it, it, such things feed on attention. And actually, this is really the only way to overcome many of these tiny annoyances, especially in life, where they stop objecting to them. Remember my abbot telling us the story of um, a certain monk at the monastery. Uh, he had his room right beside the common bathroom, and the common bathroom had uh, a swinging door. And every time the door would open, it would it would swing back and slam, you know, really really hard. And he he kept hearing this and was so annoyed by it. And then he just sat in his room, just waiting for that door to, to slam shut. And it just, it drove him nuts in one way. The best thing to do is to stop objecting to the, to these things, uh, you know. Um, and we'll usually find, again, this is all comes back, we live usually on the feeling level. And, and if we, in a sense, get above it, you'll find, especially like what I just said, stop objecting to certain emotional things, is that, uh, and distract yourself, is that, they'll lose their sting and they'll evaporate really the annoying levels. And it's, it's so easy to let insignificant little insignificant things, the little annoying habits of others sometimes to, or a continually recurring sound or whatever it is get to us because, uh, you know, becoming a form of, you know, Chinese water torture as they called it, uh, which slowly uh, wears away our patients. Um, again, in the spiritual life, we mustn't live, uh, our feelings and emotions have too much power to upset us. You know, emotions are good uh, of themselves. They're God-given, but they must be controlled um, and their energy uh, should be channeled constructively. So much of um, battle will be won by simply recognizing them in our spiritual life, uh, recognizing that um, I'm I'm disturbed right now, uh, but it's just my feelings. Uh, I'm not going to uh, let it really disturb me. So I, I think it's a, 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 a very important point. I've, I've directed many people in this regard, and most of the problem with people that lose peace of soul uh, and they're striving to please God is that, again, they're too much on their the emotional level. You know, uh, recognition of, of the emotions will not completely eliminate them, nor should we desire that uh, they be completely eliminated, but uh, recognizing how they work, um, recognizing that there is a, a lower uh, part to our soul that's not really the most important part, uh, um, it's really a sign of, uh, you know, it, it gives us the power to control them after that. You recognize them for what they are, and then you're able to, to control them more easily. It'll take, you know, it takes power, uh, it takes practice, uh, but... Uh, we can refuse to be really interiorly upset by any disturbance arising from our lower nature, from our emotions, imagination, or whatever that happens to us. It's just important to understand, especially in regard to, you know, a temptation against purity or whatever. You know, it's normal to be tempted. Redirect your mind. Think about something else. Move on. Uh, don't be disturbed that you're disturbed inside. You just have to move on. You know, too many of us think that to have such a disturbance is a sign that something's wrong. Not at all. Just uh, because we have set ourselves on the road towards holiness doesn't mean that we have ceased being human. We will experience the same rebellions in our lower nature, because we do have a fallen human nature. Uh, We will experience the same rebellions that everyone else feels. And it's precisely because we have refused 
nature so much. You know, in obeying God's commandments, we do have to refuse fallen human nature a lot of things that it desires, and that therefore it will rebel more. But it's just so important to say that to look from the high point of the soul, to look down upon the lower nature and say, you know what, um, that's not the real me. I'm not going to be disturbed. I'm going to to keep my peace of soul despite you know the uh, these temptations, these um, these unruly imaginations. I'm just going to, uh, to 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 recognize that the real self is the high point of the soul. My will, and I don't want these. I don't want these disturbances. And so you move on. You keep your peace of soul. Um, all the the real activity in the spiritual life uh, of knowing and loving God of willing or choosing or uh, of conviction, everything, uh, a consent, a virtue of sin, really takes place in the will and the intellect, and that, that's the high point of the soul. God does not judge us according to our feelings, that we feel holy and pure, but that we are holy and pure by our choices, the actions of our will. You can, <clears throat> We can always refuse to give our consent to sin, especially mortal sin, and that's what God, God looks to the high point of our soul, our convictions, our determinations, our sincere love for him. Um, and so the only thing that really matters in this life is to keep the high point of the soul turned towards God and united with him. And this can be done instantaneously, really, by a simple act of the will, a simple desire to love God. You know, we're going through a, a very violent temptation. Turn your will towards God, and you're not going to sin even though you're all disturbed down below, as long as really the whole spiritual life is so simple, really, uh, that it's just that high point of the soul, your will, your intellect and will, t- turn towards God and kept towards, you know, uh, turn towards him. That's all that really that God is looking for. That is not not the disturbances. Um, so, our advance in spirituality is really the gradual increase of, uh, of the habit of living in the spirit of the high point and not in the quote-unquote flesh, the lower part. <clears throat> As I said, <clears throat> um, the spiritual life is really extremely simple in itself, uh, and it, it essentially takes place in the high point. And I think it could be, be- best described as the right intention, uh, an act of the will turning towards, you know, towards God. Um, and we should renew this union, you know, as, lo- as as often as we think of it. And then after you're united with God in your will, and then you can look down, as I said, look down upon all the disturbances and accept and embrace and even will them for the love of God. Of course, um, you'll continue to feel disturbances in the lower part, um, you know, just because you have the habit of being more objective in your life, looking down upon looking at your lower nature and saying, look, you're going to still continue to feel suffering, temptations, dryness, distaste, distractions, uh, repulsions, uh, but but you'll have the peace in knowing that the real self is not those feelings, not that passing phenomena, but your will. And God looks to your will. The will is the most important thing. Um, That you, if you truly desire to give yourself to God and be united with him, then you are united with him, despite all the feelings to the contrary. You know, our emotions and imagination are a part of us, but they're rarely under our complete control, whereas we can always turn our will towards God. We can always say, I want God, 
and I want his will. Um, Abbot Chapman says this, that sometimes we may not feel that we want God. You know, a lot of people will say this uh, to me. I've had this, well, I want to love God, but I don't feel that I love God. Well, you're not, you don't have to feel that you love God. You have to want it. Um, and Abbot Chapman said that most people don't get to that point where they actually feel that they really, really want God above all things. But they do. When you ask them, they really want God, but they don't feel it. Um, and Abbot Chapman said that um, most people, you have to at least want to want God. You know, and, and that's, that's uh, that seems maybe um, too simple. Um, but really, most of us don't want God and want nothing else. We still want other things, but we want to want God and nothing else. We want to be saints. We want God. And that's, that's ultimately what the spiritual life is, a true desire for God, a uniting with your will with God, even though you don't feel it, you know. And <clears throat> I don't know if, 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 if this high point of the soul um, uh, you know, make sense to our listeners, but think about it, you know, go over it. Um, uh, it's really the only way to spiritually survive the storms of life. I think, uh, is, is to, and I've used this as I've used it many times where things are falling apart all around me. And normally that should be really disturbing. And, but I can, I can objectively, stand back from everything, even myself, even when I'm upset, even when I've been through a trial and I'm crying or I'm upset or something is very devastating that happened, I can inside stand back and say, you know what, even though I'm upset, I'm not really upset. I know that God's in control and I have peace. Deep down, I have peace. Even though on the, the surface of it, I'm, 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 I'm upset. I'm, I'm crying. But deep down, I know, I know that God's in control. Um, and that gives me great peace to know that. Uh, so really, abandonment to divine providence uh, gives great peace. But in order to really practice it, again, uh, this concept of the high point of the soul is very important. Um, that you look upon things objectively in life. You, you stand above and you realize that the real you is not your feelings and emotions and, and all those things. It's the intellect and the will. Yeah, I think that's a really, uh, really important point of the high point of the soul. Perhaps even now more than ever, maybe mm -hmm. someone who's been a traditional Catholic from birth may not have experienced this so much, but uh, for myself, someone who comes from mm -hmm. the Novus Ordo, Novus Ordo is all about phenomenology and um, and feelings, you know, and, and it has a couple different aspects to it. You know, one is uh, can lead to unbelief, you know, Right. What you feel is what's true, but it, the the way it, it impacted me is I always grew up thinking like, well, I don't like I barely even I must barely even believe in God, let alone even right. uh, love Him because I I don't have like you know these tearful outbursts or you know I don't cry. Yeah. Well, not to know the sort of people don't go to confession, but you know you read about sometimes about things about right. people crying in confession. I mean, you know, I think well, I've never done that. You know, I must not actually love God. Um, right. It, it, so and in our society, maybe more than ever, I think it's it's the feelings are really um, pushed. So I think that's some something really Im important for people in our day and age to to keep in mind. And you know, I, I just share with listeners that that's something that I've constantly uh, mm -hmm. struggled with, just because 
Well, it's interesting to hear you saying that the majority of people are that way, because I thought, oh, I guess I'm just not a very emotional person, and I've just tried to, you know, kind of realize that, that, well, I just, you know, that's not to be expected. But it's interesting to hear that that's probably the majority of people that, that don't... Um, well, I I wouldn't say that they're necessarily emotional. It's just that we tend to judge things on that level, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. not everyone, you know, cries... Uh, in those situations, but, um, you know, out of repentance that not everyone cries, but just generally we judge the, <clears throat> like, uh, we're holy because we feel holy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we watch the, the movie, the passion of the Christ and we weep and we think, man, I'm, I really love God. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, we're, again, we're judging things on emotions and rather than, uh, the intellect and our will. Uh, and just in general, I've dealt with people that, uh, when I introduce this concept to them, uh, you know, a light turns on and, go, and then they, you know, it doesn't take away all their trials. This is not a magic formula that therefore you're never going to have trials. Like, like I said, you're still going to feel disturbed, but you're not going to identify with that disturbance. You're going to be looking upon it as going, wow, the, you know, more objectively, almost like, like. A, you know, you're watching a play go on and you're one of the actors in the play, but you can stand out of yourself and say, you know, why am I so upset right now? You know, I'm not really upset. Why am I upset? You know, it, it just, it, it gives you much more control and it's a peace that it gives you, but it's not necessarily a felt peace. It's, it's a, something deeper. It's hard to even describe when you, when you start putting this into practice uh, and, and, um, stand objective in the spiritual life, you start realize, realizing that, <clears throat> That no matter what happens, even inside you, you know that God's in control. I, I'm, I'm. Those are the principles we hold on to. You know, you really live by faith and not by feeling. Uh, and faith is, you know, really a gift of, of the intellect. Uh, and um, love is in the will, not in the emotions. Now, I, I wanted to on this topic. Uh, I wanted to uh, read a, a couple excerpts, a few excerpts from Abba Chapman. Again, I get a lot of this from Abba Chapman and Descartes and, and some other spiritual writers, but Abba Chapman just, he puts things in such a, um, you know, everyday thing. Uh, every day, he shows the spiritual life that it's not so highfalutin and, and high-blown as some spiritual books put it. It's very, um, um, oh, how do I say it? Um, again, some spiritual books paint the, the spiritual life in in fanciful emotional you know bubbling you're going to be smitten with god you're going to feel this and you're going to be wrapped to the third heaven no real life is not like that real life is going to be most of it's going to be dry you're going to be distracted in prayer 90% of the time let's just be honest here you know let's not paint a beautiful picture and then someone tries to practice the spiritual life and it's not working out i don't have all these emotional feelings because that's not the spiritual life we have to be honest. Most of it's going to be desolation. Most of it's going to be pretty common. Uh, most of the things, it's not miracles all the time and floating around. Um, so I, Abba Chapman is so good because he says it the way it is. It's very practical. That's the way, every, that's the way it is. So um, Abba Chapman, he describes this, this peace that you get <clears throat> this, uh, from practicing uh, uh, the high point of the soul. He, he says it this way. Um, um, maybe uh, how, to, how one might express this uh, objectiveness. <clears throat> and he writes this, quote, 
what does it all matter? What does it matter whether I enjoy mass or, or feel distracted or annoyed? What do my feelings matter? I came here for God, not for myself. What do I matter? Only God matters. The whole world doesn't matter. Glory to God, that is the whole of everything. And then you look down at your soul with a sort of amused pity as a little wriggling worm that won't keep still. Again, that's looking down upon, quote, unquote here. Again, that's looking down from the high point in the soul and, and looking around going, I don't have to be enjoy Mass. God never says you have to enjoy it, you know. Uh, I find it kind of funny sometimes when, when people come up to me after, uh, you know, you preach or, uh, you know, after sermons, I really enjoyed your sermon. Well, that's good. You know, I understand the, the, the you know, I appreciate that, but we're not here to enjoy things necessarily. We came here to adore God. It's not just about enjoyment. Maybe it's not the best word. Um, again, don't judge things on feelings and emotions. Now, I just want to uh, give a few excerpts from Abbot Chapman, and then we'll close up soon <clears throat> for this episode. Um, quote, we have to learn and practice what we always knew in theory. Everything that happens is God's will. God's will always intends our good. God's will is carving us into the likeness of his son. Every moment is the message of God's will. Every external event, everything outside us, and, and even every involuntary thought and feeling within us is God's own touch. We are, living, we, are, we are in living touch with God. Everything we come in contact with, the whole of our daily circumstances, and all our interior responses, whether pleasures or pains, are God's working. We are living in God, in God's action, as a fish in the water. There's no question of trying to feel that God is here, or to complain of God being far once he has taught us that we are bathed in him, in his action, in his will. In times of desolation, we must try to be equally detached from our own feelings. We must always have in our minds the intention of accepting the state we are in. O oh God, I am distracted, without devotion, full of temptation, extroverted, worldly, but I don't like it. I am ready, therefore, to remain so, as long as it is by will. We must always go on praying not to sin, not to give way to willful imperfections. And if we do give way, we can thank God for the humiliation that results. But all the time, we must try and not take ourselves too seriously, laugh at ourselves for the state we are in, and laugh at ourselves for minding it. Because the great principle is that all these commotions, all these consolations, are effects in the lower part of the soul, and do not in themselves matter in the least. They purify and strengthen the lower part of the soul if they are patiently and lovingly accepted. What does matter is the upper part of the soul. But that is something we, which we can't feel, but only know. <clears throat> but we have to make that the highest part of our soul, or the deepest, if you prefer this metaphor, St. Francis de Sales says highest point, uh, Abbot Bloisius says the depth, it is the same thing. <clears throat> we have to keep uh, the highest part of our soul united to God, and nothing else matters at all in this world. The right intention is the only way I can describe it. The essential interior act of religion is the giving ourselves to God, turning to him and remaining turned, uniting ourselves to his will and remaining united. When this essential act is going on in the point of the soul, all the rest of the soul can be in disturbance 
unrest, rebellion, misery. It doesn't matter. On the contrary, the high point of the soul accepts it, embraces it, wills it. And elsewhere he writes, Our advance in the practice of spirituality is the gradual increase of the habit of living in the spirit, not in the flesh. That is, identifying our real self with the point of the soul, not with all the emotions and imaginations which trouble us. The real I is the will which gives itself to God. The emotions and imaginations are not me. They are in me, but they are not under my control. Feelings come and go, but my whole business is to concentrate my will on God. That is pure charity. There are two kinds of love. The love which wants to get, it is good, but imperfect. The love that wants to give, that is charity. We must not think that distraction, dryness, desolation is merely a state of trial which we pass through on our way to perfection. Perfection in this world is not a calm union with God, unless God so wishes. Our Lord suffered temptation and desolation to show us that they are not incompatible with perfection, but our perfection. Progress will mean becoming more and more indifferent as to what state we are in. We ought to care less and less about our own souls, he means the lower part, except about that higher part in which we ought to live united to God. We must not worry about perfections. Simply be what God enables us to be at this moment. When we realize that God is not only in every external event, but in every internal event, I mean in every involuntary feelings we have, We realize that at every moment of our life, we are in touch with God, and his hand is on us. We have only to be carried in his arms. Our one care must not be jumped out of them and try to walk alone. Again, elsewhere, he writes, I hope you see why I don't think you you would get much good by talking about yourself. Don't look into your soul, but look at God. Don't ask yourself whether you are distracted or at peace, But if you can't help noticing that you are full of distractions or worldly thoughts, just say, what a pity I'm like this today, how silly I am, and add, as the case may be, God is not angry but amused at me as it is not my fault, or it is largely my fault. And in either case, renew and intensify your acceptation of what has happened and and then think of something else. Look upon it as a temptation to think about your state. It is always mixed up with self-love. Laugh at yourself and then think of God, or of out, of out of prayer, of what you have to do. There is a danger of devout people living for themselves instead of living for others. In prayer, of course, your own soul, the point of it, and God are enough. But outside of prayer, charity to our neighbor is the whole of virtue and includes everything. Give the supreme point of your soul to God and all the lower part to your neighbor. Always try to forget your own sufferings or your own joys. Minimize them. Try to think other people's joys are more important and their sufferings much greater. We must not, uh, we, we ought not to concentrate ourselves on our own spiritual life, but think about God and other people. And again, I want to add in here, uh, what he's saying is that some people can take their own spiritual temperature too much. It becomes too self-turning. Um, you know, uh, they have to turn to God. Get your mind necessarily off yourself. The way to sanctify yourself is look at Christ. Don't look at yourself. He continues, Just as a mother does not think about her love for her child, but about the child. So we must not think about our love for God, but about God. But we can't think too much of his love for us. And elsewhere he writes, I pray that you may not 
that you may get the grace of not minding whether you feel love of God or not, or whether you feel commotions or rebellions or not, but that you may feel that to cling to God in absolute detachment is all you care for in this life. You will find roughly the same teaching, I believe, in St. Francis de Sales, in St. Jane Francis de Chantal, in St. John of the Cross, and in the letters of Father de Cassade, Abandonment to God. The letters of the second volume will probably be useful to you if you have not read them. You don't need to be put right. You are all right. If you doubt it, offer yourself an instantaneous act to God entirely, and you are united to God. There is nothing so simple as the spiritual life. It has no difficulties, no troubles. These are all in the lower, the unspiritual part of us. You belong to God. Let that union be your real life, and look down on all the rest. Make light of it, whether it floods you of light or darkness or de- and devils. It is all God's touch, whether caressing or hitting you hard. Have confidence in it and pay no attention to it. Be sure it is all right and try to forget it. It is God's work, not yours, so don't interfere with it or look at, at it more than you can help. I repeat, minimize all that happens in your soul, although you must maximize God's love for you. Abandon, humility, charity, those are virtues. Anxiety, self-dissection, wondering what God means, wanting to know whether we are making progress, these are very nearly vices. God is everything, and he is all love as well as all power. We are nothing and deserve nothing, and he loves us in our misery and is bringing us to himself in his own way, not in our way. Let us try to be humble, to be nothing at all. Then we shall be simple, having only one act, doing God's will, and only one passivity, embracing God's will, unquote. So I find that uh, his advice to be very practical. And uh, to conclude, I wanted to quote uh, Descartes' Well, one other point after this. Uh, Descartes' again, wrote those letters on abandonment to divine providence. He writes, With regard to those souls who have acquired the habit of avoiding all deliberate faults and of fulfilling faithfully all the duties of their state, All perfection is contained in the exercise of a continual abandonment to all the arrangements of divine providence, whether exterior or interior, at present or in the future. A single fiat, or as St. Francis de Sales said, yes, my heavenly Father, yes, always yes, said and reiterated by the habitual disposition of of the heart, without even the necessity of pronouncing it interiorly, is the short and straight path to the highest perfection because it is a continual union with the holy and adorable will of God. To arrive so far, it is not necessary to make a great deal of fuss. Only two things are necessary. First, to be profoundly persuaded that nothing takes place in this world, either spiritually or physically, that God does not will or at least permit. Therefore, we ought no less to submit to the permissions of God in things that do not depend upon us than to his absolute will. Second, believe firmly that everything that God wills or permits will, according to the purpose of an all-powerful and paternal providence, turn always to the advantage of those who practice this submission. Resting on this twofold assurance, let us remain firm and immovable in our adhesion to all that God pleases to ordain in our regard. Let us acquiesce and advance in the spirit of humility, love, and sacrifice to all the imaginable decrees of his providence. Let us assure him that we shall be satisfied with all that contents him. It is not always possible for us, doubtless, to feel this satisfaction in the inferior part of our soul, but we will, at least, 
keep it in the higher higher part of the spirit, in the highest point of the will, as St. Francis de Sales puts it, it will then be all the more meritorious. And this is my conclusion, is that, you know, we have um, St. Teresa of Avila. You know, she was uh, one of the most one of the most excessively busy uh, people um, that I've ever read about. Um, all the convents she started and all the work that she did in Spain in the Carmelite order and many sufferings of body and soul. Um, but she never lost her peace and calm. The The following uh, few lines are, um, that I will read to you are known in English as St. Teresa's bookmark. Um, and she wrote them in, in a spare moment and ne- never intended them to be published since she only used it as a bookmark in her breviary. Uh, but I think we would do well to memorize them and to, to live by them. And this is what she said. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things pass away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. He who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. And that's all I wanted to say. Hmm. Well, thank you, Father. And I, I think that line is, or that quote is a, a great place to finish up. So um, I'd like to thank you, Father, uh, as always, for uh, sharing your wisdom and teaching with us and taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to, to join us on this show. It's always a great benefit to me to be able to host these shows with you. And I and I know that our uh, our listeners benefit greatly from it as well. So uh, thank you once again, Father, and I'll, I'll let you uh, get to uh, your other duties that you have to attend to. Okay, thank you very much. And I hope um, our listeners will be able to get something uh, practical and useful from it. Thanks again, Father. Just like to uh, remind listeners that this show, uh, The Spiritual Life, is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained, however, by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Now, if uh, you have any questions or um, concerns, uh, things you'd like to bring up to Father that you thought of in this show or perhaps topics that you'd like to hear Father talk about in relation to the spiritual life, we're always happy to hear from listeners. And um, you can contact myself uh, or Father Bernard at spirituallife at truerestoration.org. That's uh, spirituallife, all one word, at truerestoration.org. And uh, we'd be uh, even if uh, you don't have a question, uh, you just want to give some feedback, uh, Uh, We love to hear from listeners in that regard as well. And all of us here at Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile, and in particular to Father Bernard. And uh, I'd also uh, ask you to consider perhaps uh, supporting his apostolate. You can do that. Uh, He's the pastor of Our Lady of Victory Church in uh, London, Ontario. And uh, if you go to the CMRI website, you can find all the contact information for that. And that's cmri.org. But, uh, of course, remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or 
even a, a simple Ave uh, the next time you're praying for our, our success and uh, for our work here, and um, that would be uh, greatly appreciated. 